0: G'day, it's Phil here. I've really enjoyed the opportunity over the last three episodes of this special series, looking into the character of leadership and leadership of character, operating on the dimensions of the personal attack point strategic with Dr. Lawrence Wainwright at the Swiss School at the University of Oxford. In this, the final episode of this series, we get the opportunity to talk about global leadership. There's nobody better be talking with about it right now than the person who's coordinating the most interesting and exciting program in sustainable leadership in the world today. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before I start my conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Adriano, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 11 sponsor? Thanks, Phil. Of course. We are proud to be partnered with The School for Tomorrow and Alex Ballot Portland Education in delivering a dynamic coaching-based leadership program called
1: LeadNow. LeadNow provides the opportunity for emerging and established middle leaders to further build towards their full potential, contributing to the ongoing high performance of the school community
0: they serve. Head to a schoolfortomorrowcom forward slash coaching. Let's go. Lawrence, let's go. Let's go. Let's get into it.
1: Let's get into it. Let's get into it. So
0: you have this term called tuna. Do you want to tell me what tuna is, please?
1: Yeah. So uh, tuna, as delicious as it is, and I had it for lunch the other day, is not the fish swimming in the sea. Tuna is a term coined by my colleagues in the business school here at the University of Oxford. It's an acronym that stands for Turbulent, Uncertain, Novel, Ambiguous. TUNA environments are, by definition and by the words in the acronym, uh, they're complex. They're challenging to navigate in. But effective leadership requires leaders who can survive and thrive in turbulent, uncertain, novel, ambiguous times. And we certainly find ourselves in a TUNA time at the moment. The world is experiencing a level of change, transformation, challenge that is unprecedented perhaps in the last 50 years. We've had a global pandemic, had a a war in Europe for the first time in in many decades. We have serious problems with our relationship with nature. The planet is warming. We are causing species to go extinct at a, a level never seen before in the history of the planet. Things are difficult. Businesses and individuals that are going to survive and thrive in this next couple of decades will be ones who are able to demonstrate leadership, who are able to get the right balance between tactical and personal and strategic leadership, who are able to, uh, to be nimble, to be agile, to uh, think through second and third order consequences of decisions, to be bold, to be courageous, to take the tough decisions, to endure some short-term pain for long-term gain. So, Tuna is a description of a set of circumstances in operating environments where leadership is absolutely essential. As you're
0: talking through that there, Lawrence, what I really liked was the way you focus on the uncertainty more than anything else around the environment, because you spoke to a series of things which are very, very challenging for us at the moment and very concerning, and they're arising out of, deleterious human activity, you know, warfare, climate change, poverty, economic crisis, and, yeah. and so on and so on. But tuna can also operate out of things that are good as well too. So if we're focusing on what we're doing in the world, there's been a significant reduction in the amount of absolute poverty in the world right now. Yes, yes. There's a growing middle class in Africa. Both of those things should be good things, and yet they're still creating turbulent uncertainty ambiguity and a completely novel environment like what do we do when we create a situation where we are redistributing wealth and redistributing opportunity what happens when we suddenly have millions if not billions more people in the world not accepting a place that's given to them by a social hierarchy but instead wanting to take their place like all middle-class families do all around the world and to take the opportunities in and around that So what we would argue at School for Tomorrow, based on the global research that we've done, is that global leadership of the nature that you're talking about, what's essential about us is the character that sits behind that. And it needs to be a leadership that is open, curious, and resourceful in learning how to connect an organisation with the wider world and to develop solutions that optimise opportunities by harnessing adaptive expertise and self-efficacy. While mitigating the threats posed by the seemingly unrelenting volume, pace, and intensity of change around, and in this respect, we think we need to think about how we might build partnerships with different and intersecting partners because you can't do all of this by yourself, can you? So no, this no. is where this is where the networking comes in. It's not just not some tweeting on LinkedIn where nine hundred and ninety nine people connect to you and never talk to you again and one person (laughs) actually does, is this is genuine networking, this is genuine connection to build relationships with different intersecting partners, to exchange ideas and information, to establish common interests, to negotiate a place for yourself and your organisation in this complex environment through a willingness to commit to a perceived benefit to others as well as ourselves and to advocate the values and value propositions of what we offer while we nurture and channel precious assets towards them. And in doing so, we've got to assist the organisation that we're leading to know what it is and what it does. That's the character piece again, isn't it? And the vision and the mission stuff that you've been talking about to track its journey of being and becoming, to define its preferred position within a crowded and interdependent marketplace and then to situate itself constructively within the context of local, regional, global communities by reinforcing both that inner drive and external stewardship that's inherent within the organization's sense of belonging purpose and contribution and of course that of itself is fractalizing the character development of the individuals within as well too that inner drive that external response and that sense of belonging purpose and contribution i'll pause here for you to add wow. intelligent commentary in
1: there no that was that was profound and there's so many things that struck me there so just to circle back to sort of our point of entry around around Tuna, you're absolutely right that you know there's an awful lot to be optimistic about. A lot of good stuff is happening. And, you know, we do tend to focus on what's going wrong. You know, Stephen Pinker's work, I think his book Enlightenment Now is wonderful because it, it really makes, makes a clear case that we are doing okay. We're, we're, we're far from perfect, but we are moving in the right direction in many in many trends. And you know, the thing about Tuna Times is that you know there's good things going on, there's bad things, but the metaphorical cements of value structures, it's wet cement. And that by definition means that a lot of things are up for grabs. And we've seen during the pandemic that a lot of long standing societal norms have fundamentally shifted and very, very quickly. So turbulent times mean that, uh, tuna times mean that a lot of those, those norms, those underlying assumptions that were previously fixed, can be changed very, very quickly. And there's tremendous opportunity to be found in that. So. There's a lot to be optimistic about. We're at an incredibly exciting time in human, in human history, a daunting time, but an exciting time. We are at a level never seen before, interconnected. And I love the word that you used before, Phil, interdependence. And I think this is such a seminal part of this next 25 minutes or so around global leadership, that we must understand that we are intrinsically, inseparably interconnected to others. We do not exist in isolation from nature. We exist within a society, within an economy, within an environment. We exist within a network um, of different actors on a local level, as you said, a regional level, a national level, an international level. And if we are to sort out these complex, wicked problems that we face, it is going to require everything that we've got from all different, all different levels. And again, an appreciation of the beauty of interdependence. Shared value creation. We think about the work of Porter and Kramer in their 2011 Harvard Business Review piece, and it's quite a revelation. They said that it doesn't have to be cutthroat, win-lose. It can be win-win. There are genuine shared win-win value opportunities to be found all around the place. And just as we see reciprocity in nature, we see win-wins, the frog and the turtle behind me in the tank. Um, in the mornings, they sit, the frog sits on top of the turtle. The reason they do that is shared body heat. They warm up faster with two of them under the light, these are not artificial concepts. They exist in, the, in nature. They exist within human nature as well. Shared value creation is a seminal component of a successful leader in, in Tuna times, a global, a global leader.
0: You know, listening to you talk there, Lawrence, I'm reminded of something you said earlier in our conversations, which was being cautious about fads that use this yeah. word or that word or the other word when really all they're doing is just repackaging Things that have always been just enduring human yeah. values. So, I mean, there's a lot of talk now, and I've referred to it in, in our conversation that we've had because it's a current word around vulnerability. Vulnerability yeah. is just honesty. That's yeah. all it is. It's just honesty and trust. Yeah. You know. So, and the thing that people will talk about more than anything else is that trust piece, the interdependence piece. And I'm listening to you talk about independence and defining it. That comes back to respect, doesn't it? Right. It's basic consideration for others and an assumption that the person that you're with is of value and has something of value and has earned their place there and deserves respect. You know, listening to you talk just a little bit before that, and we're talking about opportunity, the people who find opportunity and they can recognize it and then make the most of it, that's initiative, respect, initiative. And then you finish up by talking about sharing. You know, it's it's the first rule that we learned in kindergarten, share everything. I think what we need to be careful of with all of the sorts of things that we're talking about is about a sensible approach that says, let's be human-centered around what we do. And to be human-centered means that we have to tap into an enduring understanding about what human beings at their best look like. Yes. And to be cautious of belaboring it with too much jargon, with too many layers of hip and trendy terms. Sometimes that stuff, I think, can be really useful. But, you know, if we're going to solve global problems, then we've got to be very clear in our communication, don't we?
1: Can I ask, I mean, do you think part of that is, is sort of being realistic rather than idealistic about human nature, around, about the way that the world works, around, around these truths? I mean, what, what, what do you think about that?
0: Oh, you're going to get me saying political things shortly, Lawrence.
1: <laughs> you know, the history of the Soviet
0: Union was a history of the failure of ideology to defeat human nature. If you look at all of the experimentation that people have been doing recently with universal basic incomes, at the end of the day, if you don't work to get paid, then it's not valued and it doesn't work. It falls apart. Human beings value the opportunity to receive remuneration for what it is that they do. There's an honour in that. There's yep. no honour in a handout for anybody right. on a sustained basis. Any magical thinking around that is destined to fail at the end right. of the day. It's a little bit like what we've learned about performance pay in the education industry. Performance pay for individuals doesn't work because the third year you give the bonus, it's expected. And not only is it expected, folk are a little bit snippy and resentful about it. They actually think that their bonus should be more Yes, at the end of the day. And heaven forbid that you would give someone a bonus and then not pay them that bonus again because a bonus structure just creates an expectation in a human being. It's a normal expectation. Well, of course I'll get that 10000 extra this year. Of course I'm going to get that. What, you mean I can't have that? You can go, well, no, you know, because your level of performance this year, you know, we upped there and you just performed at the same level last year. So what do you mean? I think we need to be very realistic about human nature. I think we need to yeah. accept that, Things like greed and jealousy and envy, you know the the seven you know gluttony, avarice, you know those, those seven deadly sins are there for a reason, you know, and it's that's yeah. just one manifestation of them. And whether whether or not it's entirely accurate a representation of what was originally intended by, there's another matter as well too. But I think we need to be very careful to understand that there are inherent flaws in human nature, and. We think around them at our peril, and if we construct systems of ideology that don't pay attention to the reality, then the climate change thing is absolutely part of that. If we allow, let's say something really controversial now, lines which is very challenging for just a history teacher, really. If we allow the people who control our media to be the people who control our resources then we're going to end up in a situation where we don't tell the truth about our use of resources and the situation in the planet. And the reality around it is that 97%, 98 99% consensus from scientists around the world, it's still not enough to change the narrative because it just doesn't work. Why? Because there's too much money involved in that process. Brian Freddie can see that. I'm not a conspiracy thinker. That's just obvious, isn't it? So at the end of the day, I think we need to be very careful about human nature. We need to understand that human beings come with strengths and weaknesses, with foibles and with virtues. And sometimes when it's a windy Thursday afternoon, the kids are going to mark up, aren't they?
1: I think one of the sort of themes that permeated through what you just said was this idea of truth and, and, and such a pivotal part of what the essence of leadership is. And, you know, your example of the Soviet Union, I mean, the Soviet Union was built on a house of lies and lies compiled with more lies. I mean, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago, you know, exposed those uh, lies and exposed that the system was, you know, imprisoning people who who didn't agree with what was going on. I mean, and, you know, the, the film, The Lives of Others, a, a fantastic German film, told the story of what lying does to a society and, and what it did to Eastern, Eastern Germany before the reunif- reunification. And the consequences can be... Uh, can be absolutely devastating. And I think global leadership requires honesty and requires candid conversations. And, you know, candid conversations about, about the state of the planet, the fact that all scientific evidence indicates that we are overshooting the boundaries of our planet. Johan Rockström's research in the Stockholm Resilience Centre, the nine planetary boundaries, we've exceeded at least four of those, possibly five of those already. We are warming the planet based on release of carbon into the atmosphere, and that's irrefutable. And we are changing the environment. We're wiping out species at an unprecedented level. And we have to change that. And we, we know all of this. And the challenge now is, can we get the level of global leadership, cooperation that is necessary to not just stop what we're doing, but also, in many cases, to reverse the harm that we have already done? And uh, this is a huge challenge. As I said in the previous podcast, this is, you know, by my estimate, sort of the, the greatest challenge that we've, that we've ever faced. And I think we can do it. I'm optimistic. It's going to be a very, very tough, a tough slog. And and leadership is going to be absolutely seminal to it. These are wicked problems. They're non-linear. They require leadership by definition to, to solve them. Absolutely.
0: But, you know, if you look at the case study around fluorofluorocarbons and the ozone, you know, the hole in the ozone layer, it's very, very clear that with very clear messaging and good public policy and the establishment of detailed leadership and management at a global level, at a regional level, at a national level and at a local level, you can address a problem like that and you can do some good around it. The holy ozone layer is considerably less than it was. We recognize it's- that using certain things harmed the environment and we've stopped using them by and large. So therefore, you know that can address that problem. It can't stop the damage that was originally caused. I think there's a significant problem that we have in our narrative right now that again, keeps leading us back to utopia utopia that was tried and failed in various different places around the world, which says because something bad happened in the past, then what we need to do is reject everything that goes in front of it. And then we need to go back to this this attempt to bring something into play that never really worked. Instead, we need to keep moving forward. That's what we need to do. I think inherent behind all of this, we need to work out how capitalism is going to work. I mean, the idea that capitalism is going to go away, it's just nonsense. It's an absolute nonsense. But the form of capitalism that we have and the way in which it operates, it can work. Another case study, you know, look at the antitrust laws in the United States 120 years ago, brought in by Republicans, of course, progressive Republicans, Roosevelt's no less. You can change corporate behaviour. You just need the character of a leader who's prepared to do it and say, no, this is what we will do. We have technology companies now, which are seeking to act or whose employees are seeking to act as the conscience of the world when they work for the most unconscionable of organisations who don't take responsibility for the damage that they cause along the way. And you sit there and you go, well, with that incongruity, we need to speak the truth into that and we need to say, no, this is what it is. And we need to be simple and old-fashioned and human in the way that we do this and avoid the temptation to be ideological along the way. Have I ranted enough
1: there, Lawrence? No, It's, 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 it's the, the CFC example is music to my ears. That was a great success, and it's one that is often not spoken about. It just sort of faded away into history. But when we, as you say, when we have a clear message, when we actually know what we need to do, humans are remarkably good at actually sorting things out quite quickly. I mean, you know, we developed vaccines for a coronavirus that had never been done before. We would never developed a vaccine for a coronavirus we did it in the uh, you know, best part of 10 months. The AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine was developed about 600 meters away from where I am now. Yeah, They, they knocked it over in a weekend. And they, they got Saturday night pizzas in the office and they, and they smashed it out and they got it done. Humans are remarkably good at getting ourselves out of a mess when we need to. Now, the capitalism question, I'm very much with you. In my estimates, capitalism is a manifestation of realistic human behavior. I don't think we need to overthrow the system. Every other system we've tried has has ended in complete disaster. I think we need to uh, we need to tweak. We need to tweak capitalism. We need to find a kinder, uh, greener, more compassionate version of capitalism. And I think we're already doing that. If you look at the Nordic countries, their manifestation of, uh, of capitalism and the uh, businesses, and we just I just with students to Denmark a couple of weeks ago, we looked at sustainable business in the Nordics, and these companies are leading the way when it comes to sustainability. They're not perfect, but they're doing very very well. And I think the Nordic countries can be a bit of a north star when we look at um, societies that care for people, care for nature, that have businesses that interact with society and nature appropriately, and demonstrate real leadership. And I think these countries are showing the way for the rest of the world in terms of in terms of where we need to get to. So, and the, and the answer
0: can't be to create more regulatory bodies and to create bigger government because it's really clear right. that people don't, most people just don't believe in that as an ocean right. for solving things. And there's no real evidence that government can act and do things better than ordinary people can do it when they organize themselves through their various different corporate structures be they those driven by profit those driven by not for profit and those sitting in between but i think that we can find ourselves in a situation very quickly again falling into type around these these arguments i imagine my grandfather who used to have a bust of joseph stalin on his mantelpiece I imagine my grandfather and his friends arguing about these sorts of things in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and I imagine the arguments probably fly around or flew around in a similar sort of fashion as the polemics do in the Twitterverse right now. I think we need to replace ideology with character, and I think the way that we're going to solve problems in our world is by supporting leaders of character and with character to work with people to solve these things. I love your example about kinder and greener because that's about culture, isn't it? And that's very much you because you're a very kind person you're a very green person and you're a very delightful Mm -hmm. person. There's a bit of a bastard sitting inside me that says, and we need to slap them, corporations that break the rules with absolutely crippling financial punishments for breaking the rules. And we need to give governments the power to break up companies that get too big and too powerful Yeah, you know again the case studies are there we we know what we need to do we can you know the cfc example is one which says that with careful well thought through and deliberate action we can stop something that is damaging without destroying the economy electric vehicles are another way that we can do that as well too we can make those sorts of things happen and that's going to be that's patently better got to be better to have electric vehicles think of mumbai think of what mumbai would be like we didn't have all those vehicles in that city i'm only picking that city because it's a huge city i could have said mexico city i could have said new york city but think of mumbai with all those vehicles not pumping out those fumes it's got to be a good thing it's just common sense tells you it's a good thing so we've got examples of the type of leadership that i think can prevail at the end of the day but it takes character to do that And if we don't have people who are equipped to do that, if we don't have people who are experienced at doing that, we don't have people who are prepared to be interdependent and humble and work well with people. And this, I think, is, you know, as as we draw these conversations to a close, this is, I think, where these dimensions of leadership play into each other you've got to get the personal right to get the tactical right you've got to get the tactical right to get the strategic right you've got to get the strategic right to get the global right there is a reason why there's a cursus norm there is a reason why you start off working on your own character then you work in small teams and then you work in bigger teams and then you work at organizational level and then you know maybe you go beyond that because if you don't have that background you don't have that experience then I would hazard a guess to say that you'd have neither the competence nor the humility required to solve tuna problems. You know,
1: I think that's obvious, but then maybe I'm just a grumpy old man. Well, well, wonderfully said. I mean, that was such a great, you know, illustration of, of how inseparable and interconnected those four aspects of leadership are. And, you know, just before we wrap up, I just want to add one other thing to the mix we haven't spoken about in the four sessions so far. I mean, This idea of who are the people that are getting themselves into positions, I won't call them leaders because a lot of them are not leaders, but who are these people who are getting themselves into the tops of organizations, into into prime ministerships, becoming presidents, and so on. By my estimates, a lot of these people are actually not very well suited to leadership. You know, I think Albus Dumbledore in Harry Potter said something like, you know, he said, you know, Harry, it's a funny thing that those who often, you know, are, are in positions of power and leadership are those who are least suited to it. And I think there's some truth in that. And, you know, Pfeffer's work talks about, you know, sort of the dark triad traits of Machiavellianism, narcissism and psychopathy and and how people with these traits are often good at getting themselves ahead and getting to these positions, sort of elbowing others out of the way and getting to the top. And I don't think that they are leaders at all. In fact, I think they cause a lot of harm in many cases, but they're good at getting to the top. And, you know, I'll say that we need to actually empower people who are not so good at elbowing their way through to get to the top, because I think these are the people that we actually need leading organisations and leading countries. And if we get these people to the front, we can actually carry carry these things out that are necessary and sort this mess out that, that we need to. And, and these are people with character. These are people whose essence of leadership is, is about character, about other people, not about themselves, about others. And I think all of us in positions where we you know, can identify these people, that we have an obligation to help them get through the system, to help them get into a position of leadership where they can have the greatest impact, where they can manifest their potential in the world. And certainly for me, I take such great satisfaction in helping young people to develop and to develop as leaders. And, you know, when my students go out into the world in, in six months time, I'm so privileged and excited to see where they end up and the impact that they're going to have have on the world. So that's probably my last piece around just the sorts of people that end up in these positions and how we can actually get people with, with meaningful, purposeful character in positions of, uh, of leadership. Well, the more programs that we have, which do
0: character education, which is really what your program is doing in a deliberate target and intentional fashion, where the quality of the person is the reason why you're doing it and the exercise of the particular competencies is directed towards something that is is honourable and noble in purpose, then we might get there at the end of the day. I'm pretty glad. You're doing that program. I'm very glad that people like Wake Forest, um, you know, the Oxford Character Centre, the Jubilee Centre, all, all of these places around the world are doing wonderful work in this place. Thank you so much for the opportunity to have this conversation over four episodes, Lawrence. I know that our listeners will really appreciate your wisdom and the insights that, that you've had to share. It's been lovely having this sort of circular experience and interacting as colleagues with each other. And I wish you very, very well.
1: well. It's been such a pleasure, Phil. Thank you so much for having me on. I've I've really enjoyed our our, our discussions, and it's been it's been a lot of fun. Um, it's been thought provoking. It's been challenging. You know, it's it's been emotional sometimes thinking about these these big questions and and how you know how we're going to deal with these problems that we face as a planet. But I think it's been inspiring as well. And I think there's an inspiring message for our listeners to take away that. You know, things things can get better, and things are getting better, and and leadership is improving. The state of leadership is improving. We have an evidence base. We're learning a lot more about about what leadership is and how it manifests. And and you know, getting that balance right between personal and and tactical and strategic and global leadership is is absolutely pivotal to to find and manifest that best version of leadership. So, thank you again. It's been a really great privilege. I've really enjoyed enjoyed the last four weeks with you. Yes, indeed, and I can't
0: wait until couple of months from now and we're having a pint in a pub somewhere in Oxford talking about the next thing anyway that'll that'll be, that'll be wonderful indeed thanks you very much Dr Lawrence Wainwright you've heard it all folks let's go